Welcome to CFOs in Motion, presented by CFO Intelligence with your host, Andrew Zizis. Dynamic and direct one-on-one interviews with CFOs and executives from enterprise and middle market companies. And now, here's your host, Andrew Zizis. Hello, and welcome to CFOs in Motion where highly accomplished CFOs at middle market and enterprise companies share their views and insights. I'm your host, Andrew Zizis. Today, we have an exciting and timely discussion in store for you. I'm joined by an incredibly accomplished finance executive and a longtime friend, Gary Piscatelli, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Hunter Douglas. Since 2014, Gary Piscatelli has served as Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Hunter Douglas North America. In this role, he's responsible for finance, supply chain, and information technology for the North American region. Prior to taking this role, he served as CFO for Timex Group, a privately held global manufacturer of branded watches under the Timex, Ironman, Guess, Nautica, Ferragamo, and Versace names. At Timex Group, Gary also had responsibility for information technology and global purchasing. He also served as a director and chairman of the publicly held Delhi Timex subsidiary. Prior to Timex, Gary spent the majority of his career with the Gillette Company, now part of Procter & Gamble, where he rose through the ranks over an 18-year span, culminating with Global Business Unit CFO responsibility for Gillette's personal care group. Gary holds a Bachelor of Science degree with a concentration in finance from Northeastern University. Based in the Netherlands, with North American headquarters in Pearl River, New York, Hunter Douglas is the world market leader in custom window coverings and a major manufacturer of architectural products. Hunter Douglas is comprised of 134 companies with 47 manufacturing and 87 assembly and marketing operations in more than 100 companies and stands out by creating innovative product designs that fuse form with function. Gary's agreed to talk with us today about retaining entrepreneurism after the sale. Gary, welcome, and thanks for joining me on CFOs in Motion. It's really nice to have you here with us today. Oh, thanks. I'm uh, glad to be here. So, Gary, why is maintaining entrepreneurism important post-acquisition? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, right? And, you know, when, when, when I've been involved in M&A and when uh, most of the time it's buying out smaller companies that are, you know, founder-led, founder-created. And there's always something, you know, very interesting about the company that, you know, makes me or the company I'm working for want to purchase them. But... A big part of it is the entrepreneur himself or herself. And, you know, they, they were successful. They got to success because of something special, right? And, you know, I, th- I think, you know, we're going to talk more about what makes a good entrepreneur as we, as we kind of move through this discussion. But y- you don't want to lose, you know, what was innately in that entrepreneur when they're acquired. And if you do, you know, a lot of the value they can bring is lost, and, you know, I know I think it's, it's Warren Buffett that talks about, you know, good companies really are a, a function of their leadership, right? And, you know, great CEOs uh, can do great things. Well, these entrepreneurs are the CEO of their company. And you, you just don't want to lose that. So if you lose that, you're probably not going to get all the value you could get. And, and the real trick is, you know, how do you meld that into a new company? Because things are going to be a little bit different, but you don't want to screw things up by taking out a lot of what really got that entrepreneur to be successful away post-acquisition. 
Well, so the idea is to retain, as you said, retain entrepreneurism. But what's more important, Gary, investing in the company or investing in the entrepreneur? Yeah, that you really can't separate the two, right? They're inextricably, inextricably linked, right? You know, the entrepreneur is the company in a lot of cases, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially if it's a smaller company, you know, they haven't necessarily built that bench to keep things going, right? So it's very important that you bring that entrepreneur on, you know, at a minimum, you know, um, until they, they have at least built a bench and they can, you know, gracefully move on if that's what they want to do, you know? Mm-hmm. You know most of the time what I've seen is... We, we don't want entrepreneurs to move on. You know, we want them to stay. We want them to stay for as long as they want to stay. Sometimes longer than they even think they want to stay. And um, you know, what really makes it interesting for most people, and entrepreneurs are no different than people. You know, if if you sell yourself to another company, but you're still doing what you love and you're still having fun, well, then you typically want to stick around, right? So you know, it's really important you know to try and make it fun. You know, for the entrepreneur to be part of a bigger organization, and if you can do that successfully, they'll probably deliver on the financial results that you want, and they want to because it should be good for both parties, and they'll likely want to stick around. You know, it's interesting. You don't hear too many people talk about fun in the context of business, but I think you're spot on. You know, a successful entrepreneur will typically tell you that they enjoy what they do, and the idea of enjoying it in a new way, in a different way, by becoming part of a larger maybe more resourceful organization. That's tremendous. Um, share with me your thoughts about what makes a good entrepreneur. Yeah. It starts with, you know, it's, it's more soft skills to start before you get into, I'm going to say, hard business skills. And, you know, passion, right? You know, most entrepreneurs are passionate about what they do or they wouldn't be doing it. They're also, you know, um, they're a bit of a risk taker, right? Because you don't go into business for yourself if you're not willing to take a little bit of risk. They're typically very pragmatic, so they don't get bogged down in some of the things that you know bigger businesses get bogged down, and they just try and think very logically and practically about well, how do they get things done? You know, and that pragmatism is very important and a big part of their success. And it's really that combination of passion, pragmatism, you know, determination and persistence with a little bit of risk tanking that really you know builds a very good entrepreneur. Right now, that's not necessarily going to get them all the way to whatever level they want to get to because there's more to it than that. But that probably got them, uh, you know, a big part of why they have a successful business that someone's willing to, uh, you know, want to acquire and partner with them. And then beyond that, you know, they typically either have some specialty that they've identified either through distribution or through a product or something that really differentiates them, that, that really adds some value from a, you know, from a delivery perspective. And it's, it's really that combination, right, that really makes a really good entrepreneur successful. And then if, if they're successful, kind of going back to your earlier question, why would you want to screw that up? Right, right. I appreciate that question a lot. So, so let me ask you a broad question. Respecting that, you know, there's all different entrepreneurs come in all different shapes and sizes. When selling a company, what have you found that entrepreneurs are typically interested in, in not only in the transaction but beyond? Yeah, you know, entrepreneurs are people, right? So, um, most people, when they've built something good, even if they like it, you know. Um, you know, they want to cash out a little bit, right? And, you know, one of the things that's also common with entrepreneurs is they spend a ton of times, they can spend years building a business. And during those years, you know, they may not very make, make very much money. And arguably, you know, if they had gone and worked for someone, they probably could have made more money during that time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they're really sacrificing for a number of years to build this business. And they're, and they're also, you know, a little paranoid and, and, and worried too, right? Just like everyone else, right? So they're thinking, hey, I've been spending five years, 10 years, 15 years building this business. 
you know, I haven't really been financially rewarded yet, but I think I have something that's worth something right now. I've got it to part yeah. worth something. And it'd be great, you know, for my own security, if I could de-risk it a little bit and take a little bit of money off the table. So I feel like I'm going to get something out of this. So I, th- I think a big part is like, you know, saying, trying to get a little bit of a payout, right? You know, because they, they deserve it and they know they deserve it, but they, they also know that if it's just through the profitability of the company, it could take a lot longer. So it'd be, you know, if they can sell a little bit of that and keep on doing what they're doing, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's an incentive. And, um, you know, I think the other part of it is depending upon, you know, structure, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't always want to sell everything either. They want to sell some and they want to try to stay involved because if they really love it and if they can find a way to keep doing it, you know, they get the best of both worlds. So you talked about passion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Investors are, have their own passions. Um, investors are sometimes entrepreneurs as well and sometimes not. So given, given the, the, the emotion and the passion that most entrepreneurs typically have for their company, how can investors contend with that at, so that the, the, the combination comes together well and post-transaction becomes a success? Yeah, I think it's, um, especially bigger companies, you know, have to think a little bit differently, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to necessarily force an entrepreneur entirely into your culture or your structure. Uh, because again, it goes back to some of the things I said, you know, they have been successful in part you know, because of some of their soft skills, because of, you know, what they've found that's really a niche or a product offering or something that really creates value. And you don't want to squelch their passion, right? So you have to embrace it, recognize it, try and channel it in the right direction, and then choicefully figure out, okay, there there are things they're going to have to do differently as well. And make sure that you know they're comfortable and they understand that things you know are going to change, right? But you don't want to you don't want to, as I said before, you don't want to screw up the good things, right? You want to help them get better, but you don't want to screw the things up that helped them deliver in the past. And part of that is that passion. So you know, a big part of it is developing a relationship, right? <laughs> and developing trust. And you know, I I don't think it's just about money when entrepreneurs are choosing you know, who they partner with, right? Going forward, I think it's like, do I feel like I got the right partnership? You know, both structurally, can they help me, but also emotionally, you know, are they going to be someone I want to, I want to do business with? And it's no different than when you're hiring someone, right? And you're looking for that right chemistry. You know, they're looking for the right chemistry, right? And I think that's extremely important in these partnerships. And I think if you don't have that and it's just a financial deal, right, it's probably not going to work out as well, right? But it's, it's, right. it's no different than any other relationship, right? You got to make sure that you gel, you're kind of on the same page. It's not just about the financial objectives, it's about how you want to work together. It's about recognizing each other's strengths. It's, you know, recognizing that you, you're there to help one another. You know, all these things that, you know, I think some larger companies um, don't understand as well as, as others, right? And, um, you know, I think it's the, the companies that, that do understand that, that successfully acquire and integrate you know, businesses. And, you know, I'm, I struggle to even use the words uh, integrate because integrate sounds cold. It's like mm. putting it together to make it work for both parties, right? You know, that's what I mean by integrate. Not, you know, not, uh, not assimilate, so to speak, right? But integrate, right? So we hear about the deal, the deal, the deal. And I agree with you. It's it, for most entrepreneurs, it's not just about the money. And even for investors, it's not just about the money. But, there are, but the deal becomes important. So 
share with us some of the more common deal structures that work when investors are buying the businesses of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, you have, if you're going to buy the whole company, you know, you've got, you can have asset deals or you can have stock-based deals. And there's, you know, as an acquirer, you know, um, most acquirers don't want to take, you know, if they can get away with it, don't want to take the risk of a share-based deal if they can make it an asset-based deal because it, it limits their, their go-forward risk. Um, but there's also different tax implications of stock deals and asset deals, both for the acquirer and the acquiree. So, you know, a lot of that is, again, it's a discussion and it's part of the negotiation, right? You know, in terms of whether it's a stock deal or an asset deal and, you know, and tax implications typically are a big part of it as well as, uh, you know, uh, risk in terms of, uh, you know, reps and warranties about, you know, maybe the past practice if there's, if there's risk there. But beyond those two basic structures, you know, then it comes down to things like, hey, you know, do you buy it all? Do you buy it all now? You know, do you buy a little bit now and take a minority and buy buy some later? And hmm. you know, you know, when I think about entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, back to they love what they're doing, right? And you know, to the extent they want to, you know, take some money off the table, but they're also risk takers, right? And they like to bet on themselves, or they wouldn't be entrepreneurs to begin with, right? So, you know, a, you know, a, a good structure that can work for both parties is, you know, either through, you know, buying in a minority, you know, with with options that can be lucrative for the uh, entrepreneur tied into hitting growth objectives, you know, or, you know, uh, is one, is one structure. Another structure is you buy the whole thing. You create, call it a phantom equity structure later on where they still have an earn out where they can make more money later. So, and it, and it really depends on, you know, you know, what the entrepreneur really wants, their tax situation. Um, you know, in, in terms of working out something that makes sense for them and the acquirer, um, but as I went on to say before, you know, my, my um, you know, experience has been because, you know, when I've been involved, we value the entrepreneur so much. We want that entrepreneur to be around. So one of the things we, we dislike the most is, you know, kind of a, you know, buy someone out and have the entrepreneur go off into the sunset and start some other business. You know, again, you asked about, you know, what's more important, the entrepreneur or the business. They're both important. The entrepreneur is the business, right? So, you know, you know why would you want to buy a company but not and not take along, you know, the special sauce that created that company, right? Very interesting. Special sauce. Yeah. So when you're talking about the type of transactions that we're discussing today, you're talking about larger companies buying smaller companies run by entrepreneurs. And you met, there, there are complications and specific issues that have to be addressed, of course, but you mentioned tax and respecting that depending upon the transaction, tax implications are different. Do they get very complicated in these types of transactions? You know, I don't know that it's overly complicated, but it's just not generally understood. I mean, most um, most entrepreneurs, you know, uh, you know, have I, I, I'll call them smaller businesses, but they're they're probably a lot of people will call them small to medium size, you know, businesses, right? You know, they can be, um, you know, in the you know tens of millions of dollars, even more, more, right? So they're not sure. small, but they're they're not, you know, it's not uh, it's not Procter and Gamble either, right? So. You know, the tax implications are not complicated. They're just not understood, right? So it's, it's always advisable um, to, to get an entrepreneur to have, you know, some outside advisors. And a lot of times they're not used to dealing with outside advisors. And because they're, you know, they're, they're pragmatic about where they spend their money, you know, that sometimes they don't like wasting money on these specialists, right? So, you know, I know I always try and give them free advice and honest and objective advice and, and tell them about their own tax implications. But as the buyer, right, I tell them, you shouldn't believe me, 
right? I'm telling, I said, look, I'm telling you the truth, but you really should hear it from someone other than me, right? You know, because, right. you know, because what if, you know, I miss something and I'm not a, I'm not a specialist, you know, for your own estate planning. And you really need to have someone who's just on your side to advise you on this. And hopefully everything I tell you, they'll tell you I'm 100% right because I, I think I am. But that, do, that doesn't matter. You should go talk to someone else, right? And think through some of these tax implications. And then depending upon what you want, we can have a discussion, right? Because there's multiple ways of structuring things, right? And, you know, we don't just have one way, right? So, um, because there's many ways you can structure things to make it successful for the entrepreneur and for the acquirer, right? So it's really about them thinking through, and part of it's emotional on their part too, in terms of how they want to deal with these things once they better understand them, right? So it's just a big part of it. So I wouldn't say it's complicated. Um, you know, you know, it really comes down to the IRS wants their money one way or another. It's a question of who's going to pay it, you know, whether the acquirer right. or the um, or the entrepreneur being acquired is going to pay it, and you know. Just making sure everyone understands that and factoring into the deal structure um, is mm. important. Because if you don't do that, what happens, and this can happen sometimes any even when you try, is people are surprised and say, Well, I didn't realize I had this bill, I didn't realize this. And you know, and 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 these these people, you know, they're not um, they're well off, but they're again, they're not, you know, to you know, to go to the other extreme, they're not Jeff Bezos, right? So, you know, they uh, you know, uh, you know, a big tax bill matters to them, right? So making sure they're not surprised by these things are, are important. So given the nature of these types of transactions, how frequently is this kind of transaction about bringing resources to an entrepreneur and making him or her more operationally efficient going forward? I think it's a big part of it, right? So, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, never have worked for anyone, Right. You know, mm. they didn't want to work for someone. So, they, you know, they, you know, maybe whether they went to college or didn't go to college, but if they got out of college, they might have immediately started, you know, creating some business. They might be on their third or fourth business, and this was the one that kind of took off for them, and, and they've been successful. And, you know, they didn't have the benefit of working in a large company to learn about tax, right, to learn about finance, to learn about human resources or legal or supply chain or, or some of the things now that they're contending with that they've kind of figured out on their own. And, you know, they may have gotten a lot of things done really well, right? But there's probably a lot of things that they haven't really done perfectly, right? And, you know, that's part of the benefit, you know, in being acquired by a larger company is to leverage, you know, some of the skills that that prior, you know, that larger company can bring to you. Um, and at the same time, you know, there could be other capabilities that, you know, uh, acquiring company may be able to bring to you in terms of, whether it's you know product development support or channel support or other types of marketing support, right, to help you grow your business, right. So uh, whether it's any of those things, including IT as well, which may be another area where they're just not you know not as good as some of these larger companies because it's not as well funded. You know, how, how do you take some of the things that a larger company probably does better, right, and give you what you need, but allow the entrepreneur to still focus on what. You really got them there, right? Going back to that mm. special sauce, and that and that's a good combination when you can kind of figure that out. And you know, a really good entrepreneur is smart enough to recognize that you know, if if they were a product focused company, that they continue, they need to continue to focus on product, right, as their specialty, and let the acquirer help them with all the stuff that is what I'm going to say non core, that can help them grow their business, right? And they need to let go a little bit of the non core stuff. 
and uh, so that they can focus on the stuff that's core. And that's a little bit of the challenge, right? Because if you're an entrepreneur, you're used to controlling everything. So even giving up stuff that isn't so important can be a little bit of a challenge. But if you, if you recognize and you're incentivized in a way that if you do that and we can show you how it's going to make you more money and we can show you how the stuff that's really important about the business that you created, you're still going to be managing – you know, um, you know, that, that's a successful relationship, but it's, it's, it's that, that's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not perfect, right? Cause it's a very emotional, right? You know, people are used to doing everything. So, you know, but the, the good ones recognize where they need help and take it. Well, and it also requires a level of expertise on the part of the investor to be able to see it, understand the, the implications of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism, and to be able to manage and guide in the ways that you just mentioned. Let's talk about financial arrangements. What other structures do investors and entrepreneurs typically put in place outside of financial arrangements? Excuse me, outside of financial arrangements. What do investors and, and entrepreneurs put in place in order to ensure the success of the transaction? Yeah, I mean, you, when, you, when you do a deal, there's lots of agreements, right? You'll have your share purchase agreement, if it's a, a share deal, your asset purchase agreement, but you'll have other documents as well. And, and one of the key documents is trying to write down um, you know, this relationship that you build, right. As you're, as you're going through and negotiating the deal, so to speak, in terms of how you're going to work together. Right. A lot of that, you know, can't be put down on a piece of paper accurately, but you try as best right. you can to put together an operating arrangement as to how you're going to work together. Right. So that, you know, to the extent, um, Certainly people on the acquire side can change, right, more frequently than on the other side. But, you know, what if, you know, the guy you dealt with, you know, moves on or gets into a different position and you're working with someone else, right? You know, how, how, you, know you need something that institutionalizes as best you can your intended arrangement, you know, and that can be everything from, you know, what you have approval to do versus where you need to ask permission. And you can even write things in that may not be completely, uh, I guess, legally enforceable, but show intent as well, right? So you can, you can talk about the intent. Because the, the, the thinking with some of that is you go into these things in a very honest and open way, trying to say, here's how I want to work with you, and here's how you've said you want to work with me. Let's try and put that down on a piece of paper as best we can, uh, so that if we ever do have you know, a disagreement, maybe it'll help ground us a little bit as to well, you know, the intent behind how we want to work together. And it's, it's an important document um, for both sides, but especially for the entrepreneur to say, hey, look, the acquirer is willing to put down on paper, you know, what they've been saying about how we want to work together. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And memorializing ideas is always a challenge, but always a great idea. So, Gary, you, you've been very transparent. You've shared a lot, of, a lot of great thoughts with us today from tremendous experience. What advice would you give to CFOs who are contemplating talking with entrepreneurs about an acquisition for the first time. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an old guy now, I guess, right? <laughs> At least I think I am. And, um, you know, when you, when you first go into finance or accounting, it can be a very technical profession, right? And everything is numbers. It's about how do you model things and how do you do discounted cash flow analysis and how do you get perfect assumptions to model things and how do you manage risk? And, you know, it becomes very scientific. Right. You know, and that's more the training of, of most financial people, including myself. And that's important. And it's, it's part of what you need to do. But the first thing you need to do, especially when you're dealing with, a, with an entrepreneur, right, 
is just to have a real discussion with them and have, you know, and just have a conversation about, you know, trying to understand what they want, why they want it. Um, do you think that maybe you're going to be able to deliver on that or not? And, and before you get to any of the numbers, just trying to get to know the person and what they're looking to do. Right. And yeah. you know, cause that, that's just as important as them putting together all the numbers. And if you can't do that, you know, you probably are dealing with the wrong entrepreneur as well because they're probably thinking about it just too much as a financial deal as well. And you don't want that. You, you want someone who's passionate about the business. And if, if they're, if they just want to make it a transaction themselves, that to me is not a good deal, right? That's, it's, that's going back to what's more important, the entrepreneur or the business, both, right? So you, you want an entrepreneur that really cares, that cares that you care about them, their business, what they've accomplished, because if you don't, you probably shouldn't be buying it. Right. So, um, you know, and if you can't establish that, that that's sincere, you know, everything else becomes harder. And if it's not harder, then it's probably a watch out. Well, and, and I, I can't agree with you more about the idea of getting to know each other, especially when at least one of the parties is dealing with emotion and passion. Um, that's not numbers. That's not about a deal. That's that's about relationships. And I think you hit it right on the head. Gary, you've shared a lot with us today about acquiring entrepreneurially owned companies. Uh, you've made some great points. You've been very transparent. I can't thank you enough for being with us on CFOs in Motion. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. Appreciate the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to learn more about Gary Piscatelli's approach to the role of CFO, read his story in the fall 2021 issue of CFO Intelligence Magazine at www.cfointel.com. Or you can learn more about Hunter Douglas at www.hunterdouglas.com. This has been CFOs in Motion. I'm Andrew Zizis, your host for CFO Intelligence. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you again. Thanks for joining us on CFOs in Motion, presented by CFO Intelligence with your host, Andrew Zizis. If you have an interesting topic that you'd like us to discuss here on CFOs in Motion, or if you've got a great CFO topic that you're passionate about and would like to be interviewed on this podcast series or published in CFO Intelligence Magazine, visit cfointel.com. That's C-F-O-I-N-T-E-L-L.com. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been CFOs in Motion, presented by CFO Intelligence with your host, Andrew Zizis. We'll see you next time. The opinions and views presented on this podcast by Andrew Zizis are his own and may not be relied upon as fact. The opinions and views of others who appear on this show are their own as well and may not be relied upon as fact or for any other purpose. Opinions and views and other information are provided for general information and educational purposes only.